Hey, and welcome back to the Chrysostom podcast, where we'll be exploring the life and the teachings of St. John Chrysostom. My name is Evan. I'm the host of the Chrysostom podcast. Really exciting for you to be listening to us today. I want to let you know about one thing. If you want to keep up with some good quotes and everything that we're doing, go ahead and follow us on Instagram at Chrysostom underscore podcast. We'd love to have you. Um, That way you can kind of join in on the conversation, leave some comments, read some good quotes of Chrysostom, see some great uh, icons and classic Christian art that I'll be posting along with Chrysostom quotes and thoughts. Uh, Maybe join in on some Instagram polls. Uh, Recently, I posted who is your favorite church father on my story and got some really interesting responses. So I really love hearing from y'all and uh, seeing how you're doing and seeing what you're interested in. So I want to encourage you, go ahead and follow us on Instagram. All right, with that being said, let's get back into it. Today we're wrapping up our series on St. John's homilies on the power of demons and really against those who say that demons govern human affairs. And so there are a series of three sermons that John wrote. The sermon that we're exploring today is really like a sequel of the second sermon. They're all on general topics, but the first sermon was preached separately, and then the second and third sermon, I think, were preached just one day apart. So it's kind of like a sequel. So if you haven't listened to our last episode, I want to encourage you, go listen to our last episode, and it'll actually give you a little bit of uh, context of what we're talking about today. And then hopefully, beginning a couple weeks from now, we're going to explore his letters to Olympias. So we'll take a break from his sermons and get a feel for his letters, and then we'll probably hop back into some sermons because that's what St. John is most famous for. So John begins this third homily talking about the difference between the congregation, the church that he's preaching to, and then the people in the world. He starts off by basically asking the conversation, what's the difference between them and then those who are at the theater watching, and I quote, the devil show. I mean, that's hilarious. That sounds like old school 1900s, like holiness people. Like that's, you know, they, they called the TV the devil's box. But that's what Chrysostom says. He calls the theater the devil show. And he's like, what's the difference between you and them right now? And he's really kind of making this point that you've come to receive spiritual food and spiritual nourishment and to gain something spiritually, and that they're basically getting the devil's garbage and the devil's show, and that, you know, he's getting them. And then he kind of uses this to kind of praise the congregation and show how important uh, the gathering is, and then... What he does is he transitions it to kind of emphasize what he's talking about and what he's been talking about through both of these sermons, which is that they are uh, eating the devil's garbage, if you will, that they are observing the devil's uh, uh, show, not because he's forcing them to, but because they're making themselves do it, that they are submitting to him, that the devil is not forcing them They are choosing to do this. John says that those who say that the devil is controlling everyone and everything are basically out of it. That's what he's talking about in his last sermon. And he says basically like, look, the people across the street sinning are doing so because they choose to. 
But there are people who keep trying to tell us, and this is what he dealt with the last sermon and what he's dealing with this sermon. There are people who keep trying to tell us that the devil is in full control of sinners, that they have no choice to sin, that it's not you know, in the, in the power of their will or the power of Christ or anything. It's just the devil doing it. And so he kind of transitions back to that core topic, this core issue that he's trying to address. He says, look, we, we've got to deal with these people. But you know the best way to deal with them is they don't need a sermon. They, they don't need philosophy. They don't need a whole, you know, thing that you've prepared for them. He said, just give him your life. I quote, silence his speech, not by word, but by deed, showing him another fellow servant living in virtue and forbearance. There is no need of long speeches, nor of a complex plan, nor even of syllogisms. By means of deeds, the proof is brought about. John's basically saying this, if you want to prove people wrong who say that the devil just made them do it or they had no choice, just live a holy life. Live a righteous life. Show them that you're not any more special than them. You're on the same plane as them. You're a human like them, the same social level as them, X, Y, Z. But you've gone from being a sinner to a saint. You're living a life of obedience to Christ. That John is basically saying we should live our lives as a living testimony to the power of Christ and to the victory that we have over the devil. And then he goes on and he kind of asks this question. Why did God mingle good people with the wicked? If there's good and there's wicked, why are we not just set apart? Why is there not an all-wicked section? Why is there not an all-good section? Why are we still living in this world in which some people are good and some people are wicked? Well, you know, obviously those would say, well, the devil's making them sin, God's making others sin, and there we go. But John's trying to say that there's actually a reason why the good and the bad, the righteous and the wicked live together. And there's three of those. I quote, For the good appear more thoroughly approved when they are in the midst of those who try to hinder them from living rightly and who entice them to evil and yet keep hold of virtue. So John's basically saying it just looks better and it highlights righteousness more when people can live righteously while all the while they're surrounded by evil and tempted to do what's wrong. He even mentions Noah, who was you know, told to be just and righteous and, and perfect in his day. And his day was a very sinful and wicked day. And so he's saying it really highlights God's glory and God's righteousness and highlights the righteous person when it's put up against sin. But then he goes on. He says that it actually makes the righteous stronger when they're battling temptations and overcoming them. He says that trees toss about, tossed around by a great wind end up being stronger. And so he's giving us this picture that God is using the wickedness in the world for his glory and for our good. That basically the, the, the idea that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, and as Satan comes after us and the sinful world comes after us, the more we defeat it in Christ, the more we grow in Christ. And so us being around wicked people and wickedness is a benefit to us spiritually. But then finally he says this, and this is where I think he's going. And, and, and kind of what he wants to highlight here. He says that the wicked benefit from us being around them. They feel confusion, shame, and conviction. They either turn to Jesus because they see God's righteousness in us and the life change in us, or at least, at worst, they restrict their sinful actions to being private because they see God's righteousness. They know we've overcome God's, or they, they know we've overcome sin through Christ. They know we don't do those things, and they, they feel that conviction through us. 
they feel that what they're doing is wrong through us, and so they want to shrink back and go into private. There's somebody I know who, um, he's a devout Christian, and um, he's not, uh, maybe the word's demanding, or um, he, 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 he didn't insist on this, is what I'm trying to say. The people at his work just know he's a Christian, that he serves God. Well, he came in one day, and, and there was basically somebody just going off, speaking profanities, but when he walked into the room, they shut it down. Why? Because they knew that he served God. They knew he was a Christian, and they knew that what they were doing was truly wrong. That John is saying that righteous people in the world make the wicked people better, either by converting them to Christ or at least restricting their wickedness. That God has you in this world for a purpose. That God wants you to shine your light and make a difference in this world through your righteousness. That God wants you to show off and be a living, walking, breathing testimony to his grace, to his victory, so that the wicked people of this world would come to him. That God hasn't initially and immediately separated us because it would leave all the wicked in their wickedness and all the righteousness in their righteousness with no benefit to the world. But listen to me, God wants to use you to make a difference in this world. And so I want to encourage you right now, be a walking testimony. Now, God calls us to actually preach the gospel. God calls us to actually tell people the good news about him. It's not enough to just live your life and then never say anything about it. But maybe the way you get your foot in the door is before you say anything, before you give them a gospel message, maybe you just live it. Because if you preach them the gospel, but you haven't displayed God's righteousness in your life and God's victory in your life, why do they want to come to you anyways? Why do they want to listen to you anyways? Why do they want to come to Christ? But if you can live an influential life simply by obeying Christ, displaying the victory that you have, then you have a foot in the door to say, listen to what Christ has done for me. You've seen it in my life. He can do the same thing for you. God has put you here for a purpose to shine your light and change this world. John says that, the reason even God left the devil here was for the same reason that he left the wicked people here, which is to make us Christians stronger. John says this, I quote, When therefore anyone says, why has God left the devil here? Say these words to him, because he not only does no harm to the wary and the heedful, but even profits them, not owing to his own purpose, for that is wicked, but owing to their courage who have used that wickedness aright. So basically he's saying that, this, that Satan actually can't do anything to those who, have, who pay attention, to those who are weary, to those who listen to Christ's command, who, who rest in his grace, to those who aren't spiritually lazy and just let whatever temptation overcome them. But he's saying that just as the storm blows on the trees, but they get stronger, the reason the devil here is like a tool to come at you with temptation, that by Christ you would overcome it and you grow stronger and stronger and more Christ-like every single day. That John has spent so much of his time basically dismissing and belittling the devil. That those who have magnified his power to the point that it's almost equal to God and that it leaves all human responsibility out of sin, John is basically teaching us the devil does not have that much power over you. And in fact, he's a tool for your benefit and don't think of him any less. John even mentions Job, that the, the devil intended to do harm to Job, but Job trusted in God, and then what did he do? He benefited from it. Yeah, Job lost a lot, 
Job went through suffering, but he, restored, he had double restored to him after that. He said that this principle is the same. The devil may come after us, but if you simply trust and rest in Christ and pay attention, the devil will only make you better, not because he intended to, but because of how God intends to use him and overcome him in your life. I mean, if you want to hear some victory over the devil, go listen uh, to last episode. That's what this whole thing is about. John really focuses in on the devil. But just as a kind of little recap, you have victory over the devil in Christ. What he means for harm, God always means for good. Stand tall, stand proud, stand full of faith because God has got you in this moment and the devil is defeated. But then then John moves on. And I want to read this quote, and then I almost want to hit pause on the podcast. I don't want you to hit pause. I want to hit pause because I want to focus something in that's not specific to this sermon, but that's key for John. Let me read this quote. Direct thine own intention aright then, and thou shalt never receive harm from any, but shall get the greatest gain, not only from the good, but even from the wicked." John's basically using the context of the wicked people and the devil and, you know, saying that what they mean for harm, their temptation, they're trying to pull you into the world only makes you stronger. John's using that in the context of this sermon. But I've noticed that this is essentially, excuse me, this is essentially a pillar of John's life, of his worldview, of his philosophy. Christopher A. Hall, he is a author and professor. He's best known for his series on the Church Fathers. I recommend you go read them. They're awesome if you want to learn more about the Church Fathers. But he writes about how much in John's writings, he John views things as neutral. That essentially it's up to you. Do you want to use this well or do you want to use this poorly? For righteousness or for sin? So like, for instance, money. Oftentimes John rails against money, but in reality he's not. He's railing against the poor use of money. The John's basically saying, hey, you can either use this situation for your glory or you can use this situation to your detriment. It's simply up to you. John even has a whole sermon or a writing called this. This is the title, um, No One Can Hurt the Man Who Does Not Hurt Himself. And eventually we're going to actually explore that work together. But I want, I want to highlight this idea that John keeps putting forward is that, look, yes, we have enemies in this life. Yes, there is temptation in this life. Yes, there are things that are negative, that are painful, that bring suffering. But we can hold this philosophy that nothing can hurt me unless I allow it to hurt me. And here is the key issue. Not because I'm good. Not because it's simply mind over matter. Not a kind of white knuckle determinism that says I'm great and I can get and I can get through anything. But John's saying the only person that can hurt you is yourself because we have the victory in Christ. That John's philosophy that the only person that can hurt you is yourself is grounded in the supremacy of Christ. That if I keep my eyes on the supremacy of Christ, nothing can hurt me. And if I take my eyes away, it's only to my own detriment. Not because Christ isn't enough, but because I've chosen to allow these situations to harm me and hurt me instead of turning to Christ. John knows that in every difficult situation, Christ is supreme. And then that's what he's saying. Over the devil, he's supreme. You can either let the devil get you down when he tempts you, when he comes at you to try and bring suffering, or you can use that situation to trust in God and grow spiritually stronger. Christ is supreme.
The influence of sinners. Sinners in this world want to tempt us. They sin against us. They harm us. And you can either use it to make you bitter, to beat you down, to reject Christ, or you can grow in Christ and his image and his likeness and trust and strength in him knowing his peace and know that Christ is supreme. You can go through suffering in this life, through sickness, through losing a loved one, and they can either send you into complete despair or you can trust in Christ and his victory through suffering. That now you get to look like Christ. You get to have the victory of Christ and know he's supreme. Man, that even good gifts, that God is supreme over good gifts, that he gives us good things. And we can either choose to use those good things for bad or as Christ intended. That John is trying to focus our eyes on the fact that Christ rules over all. That he's the God who defeated the devil, who defeated temptation, who gained victory through suffering. That John is trying to put this thing in our mind that says it simply depends where you want to look. If you want to look at the negativity and the suffering and the sin, if you want to be lazy and not spiritually perceptive, that's your own fault. Or you can choose to fix your eyes on Christ and know that Christ is supreme over all and that every weapon formed against you should not prosper, prosper, shall not prosper rather. Why? Because Christ is supreme over all. It doesn't mean that there won't be pain and suffering and hurt and heartache. It just means there's victory through it. There's benefit through it. There's gain through it, through Christ. And so I can use every situation to either grow me into Christ or or pull me away from Christ. John is saying, you get to choose. John comes back around then and And he comes back around to God um, leaving righteous men with wicked men. You know, he kind of started out with that. And he's, he's kind of swinging back around in this circular thought, and he's wanting to finish his thought up. He reminds us of the parable of the kingdom, um, which is like, which basically says uh, the kingdom is like a woman who took leaven and hid it in three measures of meal. That it's basically a small amount of leaven, but we know a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That it doesn't take a lot to bring out the desired effect. And John talks about how Christians may be small in certain areas of their life, in certain areas of the world, in certain areas of influence, like a little bit of leaven. But he says that the power of God, the power of effectiveness for the kingdom isn't in the number of Christians, but it's in the power and the effect of the leaven. Let me quote for you and it'll make sense. Quote, so accordingly... The power also of the righteous has its force, not in the magnitude of their number, but in the grace of the Spirit. John's saying that the reason that God has mingled righteous people with unrighteous people and left them in the same world was so that the righteous people would influence the unrighteous and bring them to Christ. And so that we wouldn't get discouraged or downtrodden. He says, look, there may not be a lot of Christians. Where you live, there may not be a lot of Christians. It may not seem like there's a lot of influence of a lot of Christians, but the kingdom of God is like a leaven. It doesn't take a lot to make a huge difference. The power isn't in the magnitude of the number of Christians, but in the grace of the Spirit of God. 
He talks about how the 12 apostles turned the whole world to themselves. I mean, 12 fishermen, 12 unlearned guys, just random guys flipped the entire world upside down, conquered the Roman Empire. Why? Because it doesn't take a lot when you've got Jesus on your side and the Holy Spirit in you. And so I want to encourage you right now. John is re-emphasizing our purpose. It's the Great Commission. It's to make disciples. It's to be a light in this world. It's to transform this world. And yet, it may seem like there's not a lot of Christians around you in whatever area. There might not be a lot of Christians in your family. There may not be a lot of Christians in your friend group you want to reach. There may not be a lot of Christians at your work or in your office. There may not be a lot of Christians in your recreation activity, whether you play basketball or, or, or softball or whatever you do for fun. There may not be a lot of Christians in that area. There may not be a lot of Christians wherever you want to reach people, but John is saying don't lose heart. You can still fulfill your purpose because it's not based on the amount of Christians around you, but God's Spirit in you. And if you will trust in Him, fulfill your purpose, Trust in his power. The devil does not have such a stronghold in this world that the unrighteous won't come to him, but he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world, and he will work and move through you and bring his influence, his salvation, and his kingdom to bear on wherever you are at. So boldly live for Jesus. Boldly proclaim your testimony to Jesus. Boldly tell people about the gospel. It's not about the numbers. It's all about the Spirit, and you will will succeed. John swings back around and, and finishes his good thought, his thought rather on why these good people are here. Those who say that God forces them to sin and that they have no way out, John is ready to kind of put the nail in the coffin. John tells them to show them modern examples of those people whose, whose lives have been changed forever. Remember we talked about this a little bit earlier. That John is basically saying those people who say there's no way I can be free from sin. There's no way the devil will let me go. There's no way that there's going to be victory in my life. John says, look, we need the ancient examples, but give them modern examples too. That he says something, this is me paraphrasing, but to the, to the effect of this. Do they struggle with a certain sin? Show them someone, maybe in your church or yourself, who lives with the opposite virtue. <clears throat> If they think they can't steal, show someone who lives honestly. If they think they can't lie, present them someone who always tells the truth. Show them someone in real time, in the real world, who lives in victory in Christ. Do they not believe people can love one another, even love their own enemies? Show them someone with gen genuine love, self selfless love, sacrificial love. Prove to them that there are people in this world changed by the power of Christ, John even says, do they believe that Bible characters like Job aren't real? He said, show them a real world Job. Show them someone who, despite the suffering, despite the hardship in their life, has decided to serve Christ no matter what. He's basically saying, if you want to make a difference, if you want to fulfill your purpose and see this world change, give them living testimonies. Finally, he says that, that those who basically say that, uh, that they're made evil, that they're given over to the power of the devil, that they have no way to come to Christ, that they're like the man in the parable of the talents because they're accusing God just like the man did. They're slandering God just like the man did. And this places them under judgment. John's saying, don't blame God for your sin. Just simply choose. 
Choose to heed God's word. Choose to listen to the Holy Spirit. Choose to listen to God's power. This whole section shows the power of Christian testimony. Shows the power of, of what it is to tell people what God has done in your life. And so I want to encourage you on this sort of topic of being a light in the world and, 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 and transforming people. Go in confidence in God's power. Live your life in a way that reflects God's glory. But ultimately, don't feel like you have to have a Christian degree a three-point sermon, uh, uh, you know, a John Chrysostom sermon. Don't feel like you have to have that. Come with your testimony. Come with the power of God, with God's transforming power. Come with the story of how God changed you and regenerated you and made you new. That people may not want to hear a sermon. They may not want to hear well-crafted points. But if they can lis- listen to you, tell them in your own words what God has done in your life, they will listen and maybe turn to Jesus. And then finally, John is kind of wrapping up on why we can't fully blame the devil for our sin, but we have to own it. And he, he kind of goes through a few things. He says, on judgment day, the righteous will be separated on one side and the unrighteous on another. John says that if the devil had full control of the people who sin, meaning that they had no choice but to sin, he would be on the, the one on the other side, not humans. He's saying if they literally had no choice But to remain in their sin forever, God wouldn't judge them. That's not just. The devil would be the one in that situation being judged. But he's saying, no, the righteous humans will, in a sense, judge the other humans because they chose to follow Christ and the others did not. He uh, reminds, of the, reminds us of the parable of the ten virgins, which is kind of the same thing, same difference, right? That you've got these five virgins that had the oil that were prepared and the five virgins that were not. That the comparison is between two groups of human and that the judgment can be on those humans. Finally, he ends and spends most of his time here discussing about Adam and Eve and then comparing them to Job and why we cannot 100% blame the devil for our sin, but we must take guilt and responsibility for it. He says that Eve bothered to entertain Satan, and then Adam was overthrown by the one who he should have been leading, that Eve should have never even spoken to the devil. And then Adam, who was supposed to be the leader of the family, the head of the family, who should have said, Eve, I'm making the decision as the leader of our family. We're not doing that. We're not disobeying God. Instead, was overthrown by the one he should have been leading. Yet Job was not overthrown by Satan, nor is he overthrown by his own wife, who told him to curse God and die, even though he had lost everything and Adam had everything. That he is giving us this picture of two groups of people, that Adam and Eve failed in paradise, and yet Job, in this, perf- in this just terrible place, having lost everything, his wife coming at him, telling him to curse God, he's lost it all, still would say no. John's whole point here is, look, these are two real humans. This is not just a a made-up story. These are two real-life, actual humans. One chose to disobey God, and one chose to obey him. If Job can obey, you can choose not to obey. But what about Adam and Eve? Are, 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 Are Adam and Eve basically not to blame because of the devil? He really wants to prove to us that the devil did not force Eve to sin, but he simply deceived her. He says that Eve, one, she knew the promises of God. It's not like she was ignorant. 
It's not like he overtook her. It's not like he punched her in the face and then forced her to sin. It's nothing like that. That Eve knew the promises of God, and yet Satan began to twist God's words and deceive her, but he didn't force her. But her worst mistake, this is what John says, was ascribing more trust to a serpent than to the God who created everything, including her. Excuse me. John says this, and I quote, But nevertheless, she considered the devil to be more worthy of credit than God, although God showed forth his goodwill by his works. The woman believed in one who professed mere works, excuse me, mere words, and nothing else. Excuse me, I'm sorry, I've got something wrong with my throat. Eve is basically saying, or John is basically saying this, that Eve knew God's promises. Eve knew what was right. Eve knew God created everything, and the serpent had no credibility. And the serpent didn't overtake her. He didn't force her hand. He didn't make her do something. That Eve knew right from wrong. She had the power to say no. God was more credible, but she chose to trust Satan anyways. That Satan does not have so much control and power over our lives that we simply can't turn to God, that we simply can't say no, that God simply can't overcome Satan, that we don't believe in dualism where Satan and God are equal. We believe that Christ is supreme over all. And though we may be bound in sin, Christ has come to bind the strong man, Satan, the evil one, and establish his kingdom here on earth. And so, yes, we bear guilt for our sins. We are guilty before God. But we have a gracious God who wants to forgive us of our sins, justify us before him, reconcile us to him, fill us with his Holy Spirit, and empower us to live in victory. And then lastly, John encourages us with that victory to stay diligent. He says, I quote, on both sides, beloved, reap the utmost gain and avoid the imitation of Adam, knowing how many ills are begotten of indolence, and imitate the piety of Job, learning how many glorious things spring from earnestness. John says this, I quote again, for verily there is no human suffering which cannot conceive consolation from thence. For the sufferings which are scattered over the whole world, these came together and bore down upon one body, even his. What pardon then shall there be for him who is unable to bear with thankfulness his share of the troubles which are brought upon him? Translation, Adam and Eve were in paradise and they still rejected God. Job lost everything, had all these terrible things come on him at once, and he still trusted God. If Job can do it, you can do it too. He says, are you poor? You can trust God. Job lost everything, and yet he still trusted God. Are you sick in your body? I mean, Job was so sick. I mean, it was terrible boils all over his body and immense suffering, and yet he still trusted God. Are you grieving? He lost all of his children in an unnatural death, and yet he still trusted God. Have you been stabbed in the back? Have you had close people turn on you? Job had all of his friends turn on him, and yet he still trusted God. That if Job had all of these things come on him, and yet he still trusted God you can do it too. I don't know if this is, you know, validated anywhere, if, if anyone else believes this, but it's kind of hard not to uh, compare Job to Christ. That just as Job stayed faithful to God in a terrible situation, I think of Christ in the wilderness, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, tempted directly by Satan, just as Job was tempted by Satan, and yet he still stayed faithful to God. 
John mentions that all of the sufferings and ills that, you know, could be found in the world, they all came on Job at once. Well, praise God that all of the suffering and death and sin of literally the entire world, past, present, and future, was laid on Christ on the cross, and yet he overcame it. And if Christ overcame it, you can overcome it too. You are in union with him by the Holy Spirit, with access to the Father, seeking help and mercy and grace in time of need. Whatever you're going through, stay faithful to God because you can do it. Finally, John ends with this. He says, what if you say you can't be like Job? What if you can't do what Job did? John replies, but now our wrestling has become easier, all these things being removed after the coming of Christ. What he means being removed is the fact that, you know, we were hindered from God. We didn't have the Holy Spirit. That sin wasn't as hard, wasn't as easy to fight. Those things are gone. We have the Holy Spirit. We have salvation. We have the Lord God living in us so that we have no excuse when we're unable to reach the same standard as he after so long a time and such advantage, so many gifts given to us by God. You have Christ in you, the Spirit of God in you. You're in union with the one who overcame sin, Satan, and death. You can do it. Trust in God, follow him, and he will take care of you. Well, thank you so much for listening today. Don't forget to uh, follow us on Instagram. And if you would, give us a rating on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this. Send this podcast to somebody who needs it. And I look forward to seeing you back in a couple of weeks. I'll see you then.